turn in your Bibles to Psalm 25. As you turn there, I want to ask a question. Do you have a best friend? It's a little bit of a controversial question. I mean, is there such a thing as a best friend is, is I suppose, something we need to ask to begin with. But think back to your childhood. Is there someone you remember you played with on the playground or a neighbor that you rode bikes with? Maybe someone today that you're constantly texting. It's sort of a a text thread that never ends, sharing back and forth the events of your day. For some, it might be a sibling, a brother or a sister. Perhaps it's a spouse. God gave Eve to Adam, you know, because it was not good for man to be alone. If not a spouse for others, it could be someone that you work with, someone that you see every day. I mean, you're eight, nine, ten hours at sometimes the office next to you, the person that you work alongside in your job. Friends can also be people that you, you spend time with in your hobbies, like if you make things or if you're part of a, a group or you go for bike rides or various exercising, perhaps you know someone in that context. Sharing common interests is part of what makes a friendship. But the best friends carry our burdens, don't they? someone you can talk to, um, uncut, uncensored. Just open up your heart and outpours all of the issues of your life. A friend will often share your faith, not always, but often. And finding faith, I have, I've found that when someone finds faith, it often results in a turnover of some friends. The friends that you had don't have quite the same sparkle as they had before, and you find yourself in need of other friends who can help you in your faith. That's, that's important. As a pastor, making and having friends can be difficult, but pastors aren't the only ones that struggle with friends. Other men do too. Some men have no friends. Women also, I know through my wife and my daughters and my mother, women struggle with friendships as well. It's easy to be a woman, I understand, in a group of friends and feel completely alone. Even young people, as young as elementary school, are often consumed, your, your young lives are consumed with the problems of your friends. Does so-and-so like me? If so, how do I know that? Why didn't someone talk to me? Having friends, keeping friends, living with them, and being devoted to them. The things that make friendships hard, in my experience, are time. We have very little of it. And then interests. Sometimes we have time with someone, but we don't share the same interests. But the thing that makes friendships the hardest, hands down, is sin. You see, sin is what makes our friendships frustration. 
And so children, keep this in mind. When you struggle with friendships, the reason friends are hard is because of sin. Sin divides. And ultimately, it's not your tastes or your time or your interests that breaks down relationships with other people. It's the acid of sin. And speaking of sin, as a Christian, you're told to watch out with your friendships, particularly, I think, in the early years of formation, a, a, a teenager, a college student, bad company, the Apostle Paul says, corrupts good morals. That is to say, your friendships deeply impact your faith. It's very important, the choices that you make in your friends. If you're in the public schools, this can be especially challenging. When my children were in the, in the government school, they could count their Christian friends on one hand and sometimes on one or two fingers. But even in Christian schools, I remember when one of my children attended a Christian school, she came home and said, Papa, there aren't any Christians here. Christian is as Christian does. You can go to a Christian school. That doesn't make you a Christian. And it certainly doesn't mean you can be a Christian and be a bad friend. Christian friends are in rare supply. Though friends can be hard to make and hard to keep, we need them. We are social creatures. We, are, we, we, we do better in packs, groups. When we're alone on a desert island, bad things happen. We get a serious case of the crazies. You start talking to yourself and saying stupid things that make no sense till a friend comes around, puts his or her arm around your shoulder and says, let's talk about this. It's not all that bad. Actually, did you consider this perspective? But if we go crazy without human friends, there is no hope without the friendship of the Lord. None. And so our text this morning describes a friendship different than any other friendship in your life. It's the friendship of the Lord. Now, I'm not saying that the friendship of the Lord is a substitute for human friends. I think we need all kinds of friends. Believing friends, non-Christian friends, female friends, male friends, young friends, old friends, affinity friends, time friends, neighbor friends. We need all of them. That's just, it's amazing how, how, how we're created like that. But the friendship of the Lord is the most crucial friendship you can have. It's like the, the, the paper on which all other friendships are written. It's the, the foundation of your friendship house. It's the footing on which you build all other human relationships. So our text this morning, it's another Psalm of David, Psalm 25. It's one of the nine alphabetical poems in the Psalter. Do you know what I mean by this? Well, if you were to decode this and pull back the English and look at the original language it was written in, which is Hebrew, each verse begins with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's an alphabetical poem. 
Now, the scholars think that this poem was written alphabetically, if you will. It's called an acrostic, maybe to help memorize it. I've actually memorized Psalm 25 twice. I've forgotten it three times, so... <laughs> um, maybe I need to memorize it again. The other reason that it might be alphabetical is because there's something of a sort of a library here of the friendship of the Lord. The A to Z, it somewhat encompasses every aspect. It's a diverse poem which says in many different ways and facets what the friendship of God looks like. I want to show you from this morning's passage that friendship with the Lord is essential to living human life. That's my claim. Your life will be underlived, underdeveloped, underenjoyed without the friendship of the Lord. You are a creature made for communion and friendship with God. If you do not have friendship with the Lord, you are not living life to the fullest. That's my claim. That's what this poem says. Now, I get my title for the sermon actually from the text. So we'll take a little advanced peek if you look at verse 14 of Psalm 25. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. I'll explain that verse in just a few minutes, but the friendship of the Lord means this. When your relationship with God is strong and close, all other human relationships, romantic and platonic, will be on much more solid ground. So we're going to look at um, my, my organizing concept this morning, because we're talking about friendship, is devotions. You're devoted to a friend. So these are five devotions we're going to see about the friendship of the Lord in Psalm 25. Let's begin by reading God's holy word, his holy, inerrant, and infallible word. It is never wrong. It is always true. Of David, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways. O Lord, teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me. For the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? He will instruct him he will instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, 
and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distress. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. So far the reading of God's holy word. The first devotion then for that we need to think about as far as friendship with the Lord, devotion number one is exclusive trust. A friendship with the Lord means you'll be devoted to trusting him above all others. Now it doesn't replace your trust in others. Exclusive trust doesn't mean no other trust in any other thing. We need human companionship, but it does mean that your friendship with God will be above all other human relationships. And there are some things that you will only give to God that you will not give, you must not give to any other person. Exclusive trust. This includes children, your parents. You must not give the trust to your parents that belongs to God alone. Defining your life by your parents, defining your identity by your parents is, is sin because those things exclusively come from God. And as a child, you learn this pretty much around the time when you realize your parents are sinners. You're like, well, that's not going to work. I need to start thinking about this myself. And that's where your exclusive trust in Christ comes in, in the Lord. Take a look at our text in verses 1 through 3 about exclusive trust. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. David here is, is in the midst of his enemies. He's surrounded by difficulty, hardship, trial, and trouble. And he, if you will, he gives us a picture here of being raised, his soul being raised out of the mud, out of the muck, out of the mire, raised up to God in heaven. He's, he's not going to look for help amongst the world and the people that are around him. He's giving exclusive trust to God. Oh my God, in you I trust. No one else, nothing else. We have another beautiful psalm along these lines. Speaking of parents in Psalm 27, it says, Though father and mother forsake me, verse 10, Psalm 27, verse 10, For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Your parents will let you down. They will turn their backs on you. They will not understand. They will not listen. They will not realize. They will come to wrong conclusions. 
And David recognizes this, and he lifts his soul to God exclusively as a result. And this dynamic between parents and children doesn't change as you get older. In some ways, it becomes more and more clear that you need God in your life. And what's true of parents is also true of spouses. Some of your marriages are in shambles because you are giving exclusive trust to your spouse that belongs to God. You're leaning hard on your spouse when you need to be leaning hard on God. Now lean on your spouse, but lean hard on God because he's the only one you can exclusively trust. Pastors fall into this category. We like being trusted. I do have the answer to all of your questions. And so there's something, there's a name for that. It's called a Jesus complex. I, what is the saying goes, I know Jesus, you're no Jesus. What precious words these are for orphans or for people whose parents have been divorced. A child, a girl or a boy who's experienced abuse or the loss of some family loss of some kind. But it isn't just helpful to us in crisis. It was Jesus' own practice. His mother and his brothers and his sisters came looking for him, and he said, no, my mother and my brothers and my sisters, they're the ones that hear the word of God and obey it. Jesus, with one sentence, completely redefined the natural family. Now, that's, that takes a lot of guts except that it's true. Jesus, in saying this, if I can put it this way, is evoking the heartbeat of Psalm 25. The friendship of the Lord is what's, what demands our exclusive trust. Nothing else can, can occupy that space. There's an added element here in these verses. It's the element of enemies. Verse 2, let not my enemies exult over me. And then they're not named explicitly, but we see what they do in verse 3. They're not waiting for God. None who wait for you shall be put to shame. The enemies aren't waiting for God. They're wantonly treacherous. This is uh, basically some scholars attempt to translate something that's hard to explain. It's like, they're really bad. They're like, just bad, bad. That's what that's saying. They're doing whatever they want, however they want, whenever they want it. Their hope is completely set in this life. They're looking around them. They're defining their lives by the people around them, by their own desires, and that's what they're going after. It's a closed system. God is not part of the picture. And how is David relating to these hostile forces around him He's praying. He's, he's in spiritual warfare here. Now, I don't normally think of warfare as waiting and praying, but that's what David is doing. He says, I'm waiting for you. I'm not going to take matters into my own hands. You're the one I trust. You're the one I'm waiting for. The message I need comes from the Lord. I'm not going to be wantonly treacherous, taking what I want, when I want, how I want it. The earlier you learn this lesson, the better. 
How are you doing with this devotion? This is devotion number one. Exclusive trust. Number two, accurate knowledge. If the first devotion is exclusive trust, the second one is accurate knowledge. We see this in verses four and five where David is praying to know God accurately. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth. Teach me. Four requests. You know, in the case of some of my friends, I can actually imitate their voices. I'm not going to do that for any of you right now. But when I do it, usually people enjoy it. I'm not sure why they laugh. They might be laughing at me or with me. I'll leave that to God. But imitation is a form of flattery. Maybe it's the sincerest form of flattery. If I can imitate your voice, I'm evoking more than the sound of your voice. It's your personality. It's your, your interest. It's our relationship that you hear coming out of my efforts to copy. Mannerisms can be imitated. So we know the habits of our friends. We know their tendencies. We know what they like. You might, maybe you share a playlist with friend. You know what their, their music tastes are, even the songs that no one else knows. We know what video games they like. We know what, you know, what their favorite player is on the Phillies or the Eagles or whoever your team is. So your friendship with the Lord gives you an accurate knowledge of God's ways. You know what he's like. I, this is the Lord. I know what he's like. I recognize this. This is God's handiwork all over. His fingerprints are all over this thing. God is my friend. I know his voice. I know his tendencies. I've seen this before. And when you're young, you're still getting to know the Lord. It's like, are you kidding me? But the older you get, the more you're like, yeah, that's kind of like the Lord. This is what he does. And I have found it doesn't necessarily make it easier, but I am a, a little less surprised. I will put it that way. So when David is asking to know and to be shown the ways of the Lord, I think he's showing his devotion. He desires an accurate knowledge again. Let me hear your voice again, God. Let me, let me try to imitate it. Do I have it right? Do I have the inflection, the timing, the rhythm, the tone? The temptation that's underneath 4 and 5 is, I don't know your ways. I'm, being, I'm confused about what's happening to me right now. That's the underlying context. And so the prayer is, God, I need to know your ways, your friendship, in order for it to fuel me and to be the vital part of my life, I need to understand better how you're working. Spurgeon says in these verses that David applies four times over for a scholarship in the College of Grace. Know your ways. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth. Teach me. It's a college of grace because this is the defining feature of God's ways with us. He's gracious. Grace. 
So what's happening to you is not God punishing you, it's his kindness to you. This is what I'm telling you. And a a friendship with the Lord, an accurate knowledge of God, you'll know that. I know this is, God is not, God's trying to get my attention. But he's not angry with me. He loves me. And this is hard. But it's good. Because I know his ways. I know the ways of the Lord. Here's a paraphrase of four and five. No matter what happens, God, do not allow me to drift or fall away from you. Don't let me be carried away by willfully disobeying your your word or your authority in my life. Don't give me over to my sinful desires, God. Let your truth lead and teach me. May I recognize your work in the world and in my life especially. And knowing that, may I be at peace because your ways are good. David isn't asking for more theology in 4 and 5. Sure, there's teaching requested, but it's the teaching of life. He wants to know what God is up to because he's struggling. I was studying 1 Peter this week at our uh, campus ministry. Dr. Moore, Peter Moore, my friend, uh, pointed out in his text a verse that I'm going to read in connection with the accurate knowledge of God. Peter says, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Know his ways. He is holy. I wonder, are you setting the Lord apart in your life as holy? Are you devoted to your friendship with him, to know his ways, and to love his ways? So we see exclusive trust is the first devotion, accurate knowledge. The third devotion, there's five. The third devotion is intimate connection. Look at verses 6 and 7. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me, for you are for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. The image in my mind here, this intimate connection, is of uh, two boys on the way back from the swimming hole, maybe they're seven or eight or nine years old, and they have their arms around each other's necks. When I went to Africa, two men walking and talking would hold hands, that physical connection. I've seen um, women, girlfriends, true girlfriends, walking and holding hands, speaking to one another. But think about a broken relationship. You pull away. You don't even want to be in the same room with that person at times. You can't even think about that person, let alone have them touch you. When that relationship is violated, I mentioned parent and child, brother and sister, 
grandparents and grandchildren. When that intimate connection is violated or abused in some ways, the damage is, is impossible to calculate. And so David's praying for an intimate connection with God. Remember your mercy, O Lord. Translation, have you forgotten me? It seems like you're forgetting me. You don't seem to be anywhere nearby, and I definitely need your help. Steadfast love, covenant love, hesed, it's the, it's the love that binds a holy God to a sinful human being. Mercy and love. They have been from of old. That's a little too weak. They are everlasting. God, your love and your mercy are everlasting. I know they can't change, so help me translate this feeling of, of, of strangeness and separation that I am experiencing right now. Restore the intimate connection that you promised to give me, and right now I'm not fully experiencing, which goes with the accurate knowledge, because knowing who God is, I'm not going to jump to conclusions that my troubles mean that God doesn't exist or he doesn't care. I'm friends with God. I know Him. But we can't pray for an intimate connection without praying for an honest confession. You see verse 7? Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. David goes all the way back He remembers when he was a boy. He remembers when he stole something at five years old or he lied at seven or he hurt someone at nine. He sees now as an old man that those choices that he made as a child weren't all that innocent. They had ramifications. There were waves that were set in motion when he made those seemingly harmless choices that no one would see, and those waves have grown and grown into a tidal wave of of anguish and difficulty in his life, missed opportunities, broken promises, as a child, as a young man, as a young adult. And if you're old, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And if you're still young, you're still wondering if these things are going to make any difference in your life. They will. And so David, being a forgiven man, recognizes that the sins of his youth continued to have like nuclear fallout in his life. And he's living today with the limp and the, and the hitch and the twitch in his spiritual posture because of these things. And he's saying, God, please be merciful to me. Stay close to me. If you are not close to me, and if you allow my sins like a wall to be built up to separate you and me, even my past forgiven sins as they leak into my life today, then I, I can't survive because the friendship of the Lord is the most important thing. And then look at verse 8. Good and upright is the Lord. And the end of verse 7, for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. God's goodness is the basis of his forgiveness. God gives good gifts, and there's no better gift 
than the gift of mercy and forgiveness. You see, here's how it works. God is so good that he shows you your sin. He shows you how awful it is. He removes it and replaces it with love and kindness. And in its place is is a sense of gratitude. That's how it works. It's freedom. It's, It's a cleansing. And so in verse 9, he says, he leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. The humble I take to be the forgiven David of 7 and 8. The humble is the meek, the, the one who knows. It's the, 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 the poor in spirit of Matthew chapter 5. Blessed is the poor in spirit. It's the pure in heart, for they will see God. And once you see God, you're friends with God when you see him as he really is. The intimacy you require and and desire, the intimate connection, is fueled by grace. You don't want to draw near to someone who's going to punish you. You instinctively pull away from that person. But someone who's giving you what you don't deserve, far better than you could have ever imagined, you, you run to that person, not walk. I wonder how you think about religion, how you think about your faith. How do you relate to God? By the way, your friendships with other people can be somewhat measured by your friendship with God. I'm going to return to that thought at the end, but if you see God as a gracious, loving benefactor, that's going to impact the way you relate to your friends. Exclusive trust, accurate knowledge, intimate connection, two more. The fourth devotion is a shared destiny. Look at verses 12, 13, and 14. Who is the man who fears the Lord? He will instruct him in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being. That's a great verse. Soul isn't just your spirit, I think here. It's, it's, a, it's a Hebraic, kind of a Jewish notion. It's, it's good. I've got my grapes. I've got my olives. I've got my grain. It's good. His whole being, her whole being, is richly blessed. Not just in heaven, but here and now. Sometimes God actually pours out, opens up heaven's storehouse and pours out blessing in our lives today when we're friends with God. So his soul shall abide in prosperity and blessing and his offspring will inherit the land. There's a blessing for me and my life. There's a blessing for my children. There's a blessing for my grandchildren. And it doesn't end. It just keeps on coming for the friends of God. Now, this is in the order of a reflection or a meditation, as one commentator put it. David's reflecting in the midst of his hardship on the realities that he knows to be true, though it isn't presently his experience. So my point is there's a shared destiny. He's, he's seeing with 
God's eyes, where is that verse? My eyes are ever toward the Lord. So in, in a sport, they say, follow the ball. Where your eyes go is, is how you're going to throw it or hit it or whatever. So he's looking at his destiny. Full, abundant blessing. And my eyes are ever on the, I'm, my eyes are ever on the ball. I've got my eye on the ball. And what God sees is what I see. My, my children are going to be blessed. My life is going to be full and rich. And then the phrase that I get my title from in verse 14, the friendship of the Lord is with those who fear him. I'd like to point out um, in my Bible, if, if you're looking at the ESV, there's a, there's a little footnote there, a little um, superscript, a number one, which in the bottom says it's the secret council. Secret council. Now, council is, is a word that can be spelled two ways. Council as in C-O-U-N-S-E-L, council, conversation, advice that's given, speech. But then a, a council is also a group of people, C-I-L. And I think a way to understand friendship is that there's a council that you're invited into, a circle. You're in God's inner circle when he's your friend. And in that inner circle, he confides in you secrets, secrets, truths that are not known, secrets in your heart that, that words can't even express, comfort and encouragement, instruction. Listen to these verses about how God is friends with the prophets. Jeremiah 23, 18. Who among them has stood in the council, the circle of the Lord, to see and to hear his word, or who has paid attention to his word and listened. Amos 3.7, For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret, his counsel, his speech, to his servants, the prophets. So Jeremiah and Amos both kind of capture both sides, the, the circle of intimate acquaintances, which makes God's circle of friends, and then the conversation of the words of the Lord, which are given. Has God revealed his secrets to you? Do you count yourselves amongst God's circle of friends? Are you an intimate with God? Do you speak with him? Does he speak with you? Does he prompt you? Does he lead you? Do you know his plans? Do you approve of his plans? Are you part of the plan? Do you look at the goal that he has for humanity and does it thrill you? Do you share his destiny? Does he share yours? Have you bound yourself covenant have you covenanted yourself to the destiny of God, to God's purposes in the world? Are you going to hang on to that purpose no matter what? These are the questions that measure your friendship and devotion to the Lord. I love Ruth's example. In Moab, Naomi's two sons die. And so she has two daughters-in-law, Moabite women. And she says, I'm going back home. And the one daughter-in-law says, okay, see ya but not Ruth. Ruth says, not so fast, Naomi. Where you go, 
I go. Your people, my people. Your God, my God. There's a shared destiny there. Ruth practically clung to her mother-in-law. And with that act of devotion, that friendship between a daughter-in-law and a mother-in-law, the entire messianic line proceeds. Because Ruth marries Boaz, and Boaz's grandson is David. Shared destiny. The fifth devotion in verses 15 through 20 is desperate dependence. His friendship with the Lord is desperately dependent. He will pluck my feet out of the net, verse 15. I am lonely and afflicted, verse 16. My my troubles are spilling out of my heart, verse 17. I am in distress. Consider my trouble. Forgive all my sins. He once again prays for forgiveness. Look at how many my foes are and with what violent hatred they hate me. Guard my soul. Deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. This is the real subject of the psalm, and it's taken us to get to 15 to really see David unpacking his crisis. And it's in general terms, I admit, but the problem in this psalm is that I am in crisis and I need the Lord. And he calls on the Lord because he is devoted to this friendship, and he cries out desperately. He doesn't just sort of need God. He needs him all the way. He's not going to man up. He's not going it alone. I'll give you a call if I need help. Yeah, show up. Maybe, maybe not. There's no devotion. Trust me. There is no devotion like desperation. So the psalm ends as it begins. David devoting himself to God. May integrity and uprightness preserve me. Verse 21. For I wait for you. So he's waiting in the beginning in verse 3. And he's waiting at the end. But then he turns from his own individual challenges to the whole church, verse 22. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. We saw in our In Covenant weekend that the church actually begins in Genesis chapter 1. The church didn't come around at Jesus' time or Pentecost. Church are the special people of God from the beginning. And so David recognizes that his troubles are to be shared with the church are shared by the church, the redemption he needs, the church needs, the redemption that the king needs, the people needs. And so you, if you are united to Christ, you are united to others, like it or not, who are in similar situations. And that Christological connection is the, is the outflow of your friendship with the Lord. Well, As I conclude this morning, I want to share a little bit about my friend. William Carr passed away about a week ago. And if you were here for his funeral on Friday, you would have heard many reasons why he was a friend of mine. You know, we met randomly on the golf course. I had no friends when I moved to New Jersey, so I just went golfing and said, hey, would you be my friend? Well, not exactly, but, you know, more or less. And William said, Phil, sure. 
And so we started golfing pretty much every other week for at least a number of months. But our friendship never got to develop as I would have liked. His job kept him busy. He was a contractor, a brilliant man, of a brilliant craftsman. His family situations kept him busy, a couple of moves. And also complicating our friendship was his illness. And this happens as you age. Your, your friends get sick. And he lives in Maryland. So I stayed in touch with him, but, and we stayed friends. You know, some friends don't take a lot of investment once there's, that intimacy is forged. It's like you can pick up right where you left off. I would counsel William, and he would counsel me, which is the sign of a good friendship. But more than anything, more than words, he was an inspiring example to me. But his illness eventually caught up to him, and when I got the text from his daughter last Friday at around 6 o'clock, I was at the hospital an hour and a half later. I basically dropped everything. She says, no, no, it's fine. He's, you know... They're just giving us the heads up that this thing could take a turn for the worse. And I said, I'm not taking any chances. William died six hours later. I remember some of William's secret counsels. He, he invited me into that circle. There are things he told me I won't tell anyone else. Do you have a relationship with God that you can call a friendship? Is he telling you secrets? Does he trust you? Are you partners? A holy God and you, a sinful man or woman. How are you maintaining this friendship? Have you let work or illness or busyness get in the way? Maybe you think God is only friends with big people, with grown-ups. Au contraire. The best friends of God are children. What aspect or devotion of friendship do you need to work on today? Exclusive trust? Accurate knowledge? That intimate connection? Remember the two boys with their arms around each other's necks? The shared destiny. Maybe you're working on your own plan for your life. I've got a plan for my life. God says, that's not my destiny. Or this desperate dependence. I also want to encourage you to choose your friends carefully and Perhaps some of you need to lose a few friends today. And finally, I want to challenge you as we close to be the kind of friend to others that will help them grow closer to the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll end with a favorite hymn. What a friend we have in Jesus. Are we weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care? Precious Savior, still our refuge. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Do your friends despise, forsake you? Take it to the Lord in prayer. In his arms he'll take and shield you. You will find solace there. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord, for being friends with sinners through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Thank you for reminding us of this friendship this morning. Help us to not take it for granted. Help us to not ignore it, let alone run from it. For you are seeking and saving the lost, even today. So if there be someone here who in fact is your enemy, I pray, Lord, they would repent and repent.
relent and submit to you and embrace the friendship which you alone can provide. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Church House located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.